from fake meat and robot chefs to ghost kitchens and delivery drones, the restaurant industry is rapidly evolving. Welcome to Food Fighters, bringing you interviews with the leading industry trailblazers. I'm your host, Zach Goldstein. Hey, this is Zach Goldstein. Welcome to the Food Fighters podcast. Super excited to be here today with Dana Worth, VP of Sales at Impossible Foods. Impossible Foods is a company that develops plant-based substitutes for meat products. Welcome, Dana. Thanks, Zach. It's great to be here. So, Dana, tell us about Impossible, what you guys are doing, uh, and we're really excited about the the huge impact you're having on the restaurant industry. Yeah, happy to. So, uh, Impossible Foods was founded in 2011 uh, by a professor of biochemistry at Stanford named Pat Brown. Uh, And we have one goal and one goal only, which is to transform the global food system by replacing the use of animals as a food technology in that system. We uh, have developed a product called the Impossible Burger, which many of your listeners might be familiar with, uh, sold at 15,000 restaurants across the country, uh, including every location of Burger King in the United States. Uh, And it is a burger made out of plants for people who love meat. And as a matter of fact, most of the people who have our burger are meat lovers. Uh, and we intend to develop a whole range of products uh, that we currently use animals to develop uh, today. That's fantastic. And and the Impossible Burger is really quite in a fantastic meal. Um, tell us about the experience for those that haven't eaten an Impossible Burger, uh, because there's a lot of really revolutionary innovation going into that, uh, into that food that makes it so tasty uh, and so effective at achieving that mission. Yeah, we, you know, I'm a meat eater. I love meat, um, as I imagine most of your listeners are, most people on the planet are. And people love meat because it's delicious, because it's affordable, because it uh, delivers nutritional benefits uh, that they they want for themselves and their family. And the Impossible Burger delivers on all of those same things that people love about animal-based meat. So we worked really hard to make it delicious, first and foremost. That is what consumers care most about. But it's also nutritious. Uh, it has no cholesterol but it has all the same uh, micronutrients and uh, the same amount of protein as you'd expect from your beef burger. And it obviously has the benefits of being uh, better for better for animals and importantly, better for the environment. And that is really why we started this company uh, was to mitigate the impact that, that the animal agriculture industry has on the planet to make sure that we have uh, a planet for our children uh, to live on. One of the ways that we did that and that was a little bit different was we spent four years from 2011 to 2015 working on really trying to understand what it takes to make meat plants taste like meat. So why does meat taste like meat? Why does it sizzle when you put it on the grill? Why does it turn from red to brown? All of those things were questions that hadn't really been asked before. And so Pat hired an outstanding team of scientists who spent a ton of time just trying to figure that out, whether it was for, for cow meat or pig meat or fish or chicken. And we developed a platform over that time. Uh, that we believe is equally applicable to our first product, the Impossible Burger, as it is to future products down the road. That's awesome. Uh, and and you personally were responsible for the Impossible Foods partnership with Burger King, which is now nationwide, uh, has created the Impossible Whopper, uh, which some would even be calling a phenomenon. Burger King recently credited the Whopper with, or the Impossible Whopper specifically, with a 5% increase in quarterly sales. Uh, that is huge in terms of driving revenue volume to a restaurant. There's a lot of things restaurants are doing to stay relevant, and you've created a product that is single-handedly doing that. 
Tell us about that experience, that process of working with Burger King. Um, how long did it take to break through, uh, and and what's the future hold? Yeah, it's a it was it's a pretty interesting partnership. You know, I I've been at the company since 2015. Uh, I joined before we had our first product on the market. Uh, did our partnership with our very first restaurant, which was uh, which was David Chang's Momofuku Nishi in New York. Uh, that was restaurant number one, all the way up to our large partnership with Burger King. And you know, to be honest, it's it's really been kind of my dream since the beginning to have a partnership with a large QSR. And you know, the way I think about QSRs is if you want to have the impact that we want to have, which is to completely change the food system, you have to be where people eat and people eat at QSRs. I think the statistic is something from the CDC like. 45% of uh, of 20 through 35-year-olds have been to a QSR in the last 24 hours at any given point. So you know, the, the great thing that the QSR industry has done is built, built the rails. Right? They've built, uh, they have the store footprint, they have the labor footprint, they have the training and operational procedures to allow you to get big very fast. And that's why it's always been interesting to me to try to get our product in there. Now, of course, you have to have a product that delivers what consumers want. So it has to be delicious. It has to be at a price point uh, that makes sense for people and makes them feel like they're getting a good value out of what they're buying. That partnership with Burger King, we've been talking to, to many folks for a long time, but we really, really liked Burger King for several reasons. Um, one is, you know, they are a challenger brand and they are uh, excited to move fast and do, to do things a little bit off script, uh, which is very similar to the startup mentality. And you know, we went from really having our first serious Burger King conversations in the fall of last year to being on menu uh, with a test at their 70 stores in St. Louis on April 1st of this year of 2019, which uh, for those of you who are familiar with, with the industry, that is remarkable speed for rolling out a new menu item. Uh, and that was, you know, I attribute you know, as much to our speed as a startup as to their speed uh, as, as a company and their ability to really, when they set their mind to something, really move fast. I mean, we had some incredible jam sessions on product, on how we wanted to go to market, on creative ideas. Uh, at, at one point, I flew their headquarters in Miami. I, I flew to Miami twice in the same week uh, to to get things done. Uh, we were just both both sides were really all in on seeing the opportunity. Uh, and I give them a huge amount of credit for that. And as you, as you mentioned, it's paid off for them. It's amazing. It's an amazing story. And you're right, that kind of pace of innovation is largely unheard of industry wide. Um, as you think about uh, who are the people that are purchasing the Impossible Whopper or Impossible Burgers more broadly, uh, is it new people coming to these brands? Is it cannibalizing existing sales? I mean, that's one of the questions that people are asking. And the answer may be a little of both and unknown. But as you see it long term, how much of its cannibalization, how much of its net new customers mm -hmm. coming for the diversity? How do you think about that trade off uh, as a restaurant? I think it's a it's a great question and one that I get asked all the time when I'm going out to sell sell new restaurants. Um, one of the things that's really interesting is you know we launched April first in St. Louis. We had a series of regional tests, but then we went nationwide in early August. So Burger King's quarterly earnings for Q3 actually represent some of the partial quarter for the for the nationwide rollout. And while the St. Louis test was a huge success, what's interesting to me is that the nationwide launch has been as well because you know it's one thing to say hey we we can pour a lot of media attention onto a relatively concentrated spot and make that pop it's another thing to say over burger king's 7200 stores nationwide that we're seeing sales across the board so to your question of you know who who are these people 
you know, in many ways, they're, you know, in many ways, they're reflective of America, right? We Burger King has stores in, in every state from Alaska to, to Hawaii to Florida to Maine um, and has customers of all different types. And so what's exciting is that we're finding that uh, the Impossible Whopper has, has broad appeal. That being said, there's actually been some third-party research uh, that's out there uh, that you can find publicly analyzing credit card data for folks who are consuming the Impossible Whopper. Uh, and what they're finding is that these are largely incremental transactions uh, to Burger King. Uh, they're largely uh, higher ticket transactions for Burger King. Uh, and they are bringing in a, demogra- a desirable demographic uh, of folks who um, have more disposable income. And so that's been exciting for, for BK as well. Q&A with the restaurant industry's leading disruptor. This is Food Fighters, the podcast. As you talked about at the beginning of the podcast, uh, one of the parts of the mission of Impossible uh, is removing that dependency on on meat uh, and animal products. Uh, and I'm wondering, as you think about the demographic that's buying the product, that is mm-hmm. that is rushing to the various different restaurants where you can get the Impossible Burger, is that the reason they're doing it? Is it diversity of flavor? Is it health? Uh, what what's driving people to try this and and what makes you believe that it's more than trial and a long-term sustainable switch for most of those consumers? Yeah, I think the answer is yes to all of those things. And one of the things that is central to our thesis is letting the market work, right? And and it's incumbent on us to deliver a product that uh, that excels and exceeds consumer expectations on whatever dimension it is that they care about. So we have some consumers who are there for the health benefits. So there are folks who are watching their cholesterol and are excited. Uh, that we have a, a zero cholesterol product, right? They love burgers. Uh, this allows them to to not worry as much about their cholesterol. Uh, we have some folks who are there for the animal the animal rights part. We have some folks who are there for the environmental part. We have some folks who are there because they are, you know, they're in, they're foodies, and this is something that's interesting. And they and they came in for the first time because they saw the Impossible Burger promoted by a celebrity in their Instagram feed. But we've seen time and time again that people will not sacrifice when something doesn't taste good, and that's why. You know, only less than ten percent of the of the country is vegetarian. You know, people know that these issues are important, but food is just so important, so central to people's lives every day that it's very hard to to ask people to make uh, changes, even if they kind of know cerebrally that they should. Um, so it's been important to us from the very beginning to deliver something that just tastes great, um, and then people come back for all sorts of other reasons because they they get that stuff for free, so to speak. They get that without having to make make a compromise. Um, so to your, you know, to your answer, why do people who's trying it? I think it's, I think it's a relatively broad cross section of folks. I think it's people with all different reasons. And the nice thing is the product delivers on all those reasons. You don't have to, you don't have to buy into all the reasons if you just choose one. Uh, and then in terms of sustainability, you know, I think what we're seeing on, on the Burger King results, for example, is that people are coming back again and again, this wasn't a one-time pop in media event in April in St. Louis, uh, we're able to, to sustain that into uh, into real you know, earnings call level results for our customers. A lot of the businesses you're selling into are so margin constrained. They're mm-hmm. so focused on operating um, w- with tight margins that they're generally trying to limit food costs. Mm-hmm. And yet today, the Impossible Burger is a, is a premium product and in many cases is being sold at a premium price. Is that the long-term goal and strategy? Is that going to change over time? Are there more products um, in the offering that are coming soon that might have a different dynamic? How, how do you fit into the into the broader margin and cost discussion 
for a restaurant, whether it's a QSR or a casual dining or, or fine dining restaurant? Yeah. So our goal, it all comes back to the mission, which is to be everywhere where animal products are sold today. And to do that, we have to bring our prices down. So it is by no means the long-term goal to be a premium priced product. That is an artifact of the fact that we are small. Uh, and you know, with our small scale comes higher cost of production. Uh, as we scale, we fully intend to bring those those costs down. We're already seeing actually those costs come down. Uh, and we don't intend to maintain that as a, as a premium price to the consumer. Uh, simply wouldn't support the mission to do it any other way. Uh, so yes, you're you're correct that actually right now, you know, our customers are able to support a price premium in most cases to the consumer, and we're finding that the consumers are willing to pay that. And so while they while our customers might see some percentage margin compression, in many cases they're actually seeing dollar margin expansion. But over the long term, you know, we want to be we want to be positioned in a way that fits into the existing restaurant business model uh, in a way that allows them to to drive margin expansion actually uh, over the long term. That that point about dollar margin expansion is is huge um, because at the end of the day, that's obviously what drives the ability to reinvest in in the brand. And and uh, one of the things that we're seeing is an absolute effort by restaurants to drive increases in customer lifetime value. It's a competitive mm-hmm. market. Margins are under pressure from labor. Margins are under pressure from delivery. How do you get someone coming back more often? And o- often there's been a question of a veto vote. It sounds mm-hmm. like this is well beyond veto vote. This is not only converting people um, who, who are regulars, um, but it's creating a reason for them to come back over and over again because it's something new and, and uh, the industry doesn't have a whole lot of new uh, product innovation coming from the food world. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of customers we talk to at first think that it's going to be a veto vote thing. And just to explain to your listeners what that means, uh, you know, that you've got a group of four or five people, one person is vegetarian or has some reason that they you know, don't want the offerings of that restaurant. And so they, they bring the whole group elsewhere. Um, we hear that a lot from partners early on, but as you rightly assessed, as they get into it, they realize that's not the case at all. Um, that we're talking about totally net new customers talking about, uh, you know, solo diners. I was, I was in the Denver airport two nights ago at the Qdoba in the central concourse there. And so these are all solo travelers, people traveling alone, no issue of veto vote. And the three people in line in front of me all ordered, uh, the impossible burrito bowl. And, you know, I, I don't know exactly what their motivations were, but, you know, presumably it's, it's a product they've had before. They knew what they wanted. Uh, they may even have come to Qdoba, especially, uh, on a trip that they wouldn't have made before, uh, because of that offering. That is such a neat experience. Uh, you know, it's a neat experience for, for me as a, as a technology founder, watching consumers engage Absolutely. Uh, with our technology. <laughs> and as, as you think about standing in line at Denver away from home, Watching people literally order the food product that you've brought to market, uh, that's just a really cool experience for you personally. Yeah, it was great. And, and kudos to Qdoba. Uh, the guys working the line were asking people if they wanted to try Impossible. <laughs> well, that feels good. That makes your life a lot easier. Exactly. You, can, exactly. you can tell a winning story when you've got the people on the ground actively pushing it. Absolutely. That brings us to, to you. Um, some people have been, uh, as we call it, food fighters. They've been in the industry f- forever. Um, and others, uh, stumbled into it and fell in love with the food and restaurant industry, um, over time. How did you end up in this role, right? You talked about selling the first brand and now expanding to national partnerships left and right. Um, but was this, was this your dream to sell impossible burgers across the country or did you stumble into it? Yeah, I'm more of the stumble in, uh, character. So 
for me, it's always been important to work on problems that impact every single human on the planet. And, you know, I think there's only a few systems where that's the case, you know, the food system, certainly. Uh, but, you know, the energy system, the transportation system, uh, the money system actually came from, from PayPal, uh, you know, which is you know, one of those big systems that everyone on the planet touches uh, you know, every day in most cases. Uh, but what really fascinated me about about food was a few things. One is, you know, not only is every every person on the planet a consumer multiple times a day, um, but there's another two billion people on the planet who are producers into the system. Uh, and so I, I, you know, as I've gotten to it, I can't imagine a system that touches more human beings in more ways on a daily basis than the food system. Uh, and I pair that with it's also one of the most antiquated systems on the planet. Um, you know, the the cow, the primary meat production technology that we use hasn't changed in 10,000 years. Uh, and when you think about it that way, uh, the, the, tech, the technologist in you says, man, this, this is probably ripe for, ripe for some change. So when I came across Impossible uh, and realized that they were interested in tackling this, this big, big problem, and also that they were interested in tackling it in a very scientific way, that really appealed to me. You know, I, I first visited the lab here in Redwood City uh, and saw that there was real science going on. There was, you know, people in the lab inventing stuff. And this wasn't about creating a different, uh, a different pricing model or a different way to go to market. This was, this was real true innovation. Uh, and that, that really intrigued me. Um, I've loved, always loved working with kind of hardcore, uh, technology, uh, but really, you know, physical world technology, not, uh, not software as much. And this was really up my alley. And, uh, I saw an opportunity to, uh, to join up with the company before we brought our first product to market, uh, and really help, uh, guide what this should look like commercially. And and the rest is history, as they say. I was at the NRA show uh, earlier this year, and uh, I can guarantee that your booth was the absolute most packed across the entire Chicago uh, Convention Center landscape. People are flocking to try Impossible Burgers, uh, and I saw a lot of people even then going back for seconds. So uh, that's big money for restaurants that have been looking for reasons to get people to come back over and over again. Absolutely. So this has been great, Dana. Uh, I think the the Impossible Burger is a success story in terms of uh, innovation and bringing technology to the restaurant industry. How does this future evolve? What does success look like when Impossible Burger uh, has spread not just to the first couple of brands that you've talked to, but is ubiquitous and everywhere? What's different about the food system, about restaurants, about the world uh, when Impossible Foods has achieved its mission? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, we... As, as, as I've said a few times, we want to be everywhere, right? And that means every product category, that means every country, that means every restaurant type. Uh, and we, we've got a lot of work to do to get there. Uh, we're fortunate to have uh, great investors and great support and a great team here uh, to get there. And, and that's, you know, we publicly stated that we want to have eliminated the use of animals in the, in the food supply chain by 2035, 16 years from now. And I know that sounds crazy to most people. But I really think it's achievable. And there are some precedents, right? We moved from a horse-based transportation economy to an automobile-based transportation economy in about 20 years. And the reason why was because the automobile came along and it it delivered on what people needed in a better way than the horse. It wasn't that people wanted to use horses to get from point A to point B. They just had no alternative. Um, and we believe the same thing's happening here um, across the plant-based industry, right? Um, this isn't, you know, we think of our competition as as animal products, not other plant-based meat products and, and not other cellular uh, agriculture products either. So I think the world uh, that, that we envision by 2035 is one where it will seem insane that we used to use a 10,000-year-old technology to uh, to make meat 
that our kids will think won't even be able to comprehend why we did that. Uh, I think that we will have we will be, be able to start to turn the tide, or we will start to turn the tide on climate change. Uh, this is one of the few technologies that actually has the ability to roll back climate change, uh, because by using substantially less land uh, to produce animal feed and to graze animals, we can actually restore land to its native state and become carbon sinks. So we can actually reduce the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, um, and which is something that we, that we need to do critically right now to to turn back the effects of climate change. So I envision a, a, a an industry that is um, where this is totally normal, and I actually don't think it's going to take that long. And I envision a planet that is healthier uh, than than ours is today. That is a vision we can all be excited about. Uh, and the restaurant industry seeing this type of innovation with that type of mission uh, should be exciting for restaurant operators, uh, uh, consumers, uh, and of course, you and your team at Impossible. Um, that we are excited to see what comes next. So, Dana, thanks so much for joining us on Food Fighters talking about your food fight. And frankly, it's it's broader than that. Uh, it's a global food fight and the change you're trying to bring forward and keep on fighting. We appreciate the time today. Thanks, Zach. Great to be with you. You've been listening to Food Fighters with me, Zach Goldstein. To subscribe to the podcast or to learn more about our featured guest, visit thanks.com slash food fighters. That's thanks spelled T-H-A-N-X dot com slash food fighters. This podcast is a production of Thanks, the leading CRM and digital engagement solution for restaurants. Until next time, keep fighting, food fighters.